Hi everyone, I'm Hayley Haggerty and you're listening to In Case of an Event. In this episode of In Case of an Event, I interview Jeff Wagner, Global Head of Content from FT Live. We discuss the absolute importance of content, not that I'm biased coming from a content background, the differentiation between journalism and live content production, of course the future of the hybrid conference world, and what you might not know about the inner workings of a live content team. Hi Jeff, welcome to In Case of an Event. It's great to have you on the show. It's a great pleasure, thank you. You're coming to us from London, from the South Bank, I believe, which I miss terribly. And you work for Financial Times Live. FT Live, as we call ourselves now, um, which is the the conferences division. a very important part of the FT group now. Yeah, I, I bet, I bet. I am a content producer by trade. That was my first job in the event industry. So I'm really thrilled to talk about it today. So I would love to get your perspective on how you shifted your business and your events to this digital environment. Sure. I mean, even before lockdown, we ran about 200 events a year. Um, We pivoted to digital very quickly. We ran our first webinar on April 1st and put together an amazing sort of, sort of three-day global boardroom event on um, in the middle of May. And since then, we've, um, we really haven't really stopped. It's been a learning curve, not just on the, con- on the sort of operation side, but also on the content side. You have to figure out if your programs still work, if your formats still work. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting now to look ahead to, to the rest of 2021 and onwards. You know, what we're, what we're talking about now is how do you, how do you sort of pick up from this transition to digital? Where do you go next? I think one thing that is absolutely clear is that FT Live has become a digital first company. I mean, the FT is a digital first company. You know, the the pink newspaper is still, of course, a wonderful thing and, and lots of people read it. But it really, if the FT is an online media group with lots of great content that you can only get on FT.com. And FT Live is now very much a digital company. As we begin to to return to, to, to physical and hybrid, there are some events that will never become physical. They will always stay virtual. And actually, given given the advantages of virtual in terms of audience reach, speaker diversity and reach, it would be crazy to jettison all of that now. Yes, it would. It's really changed the dynamic of all events, especially conferences. And I think it's opened up some big opportunities. And Jeff, you were a journalist before you actually got into live content, right? Yeah, I was. I was a journalist, indeed. I was a journalist for various different sort of news organizations. And I joined the FT back in 2005 in Hong Kong um, on the Asia Pacific desk. And then I started in conferences at the FT. I was sort of head of Asia. And then a few years after that, got sort of global sort of responsibilities and then went to New York for a few years and now in London. I often tell people that there's a difference between being a journalist and writing good content for that purpose and, you know, being a live content editor. And there's definite distinction. So 
I don't know what you would say to that because you're obviously a journalist and you've moved to the dark side, but do you see the difference between being a journalist as a traditional job to someone who's more of a content editor for the live events? Yes, yes, there there is a difference. And it's 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 actually a little, probably a little bit more subtle than, than people think because there is a lot of there are similarities, you know. Because I've done both. The, the research side is very similar. You're talking to people. You're trying to get the story. You're trying to get the right content for an overview or an agenda. That process is quite similar. What's different is what comes out the other side. So the articles that a news person would write very much to do with the news that and the format and the news that has to be produced, less to do with – they're not writing for their readers the way we are writing programs for our audiences. Mm-hmm. They don't have the reader in mind when they start an article. We have our audience in mind when we write a program and our other stakeholders. It's a, it's a more of a commercial product. And that is something that, you know, when you move from journalism to conferences is probably the most difficult thing to do because it's easy. It's, it, you can, a journalist writing a conference program will end up with a really great program. But sometimes you spend a lot of time then moving things around because you know that the sponsors are not going to like this. They're not going to like that. They're going to want this in the afternoon. They're not going to want this. And it has to be written differently. So how should live content editors work with media editors? The other important thing really is to have very good relations with the FT journalist that is sort of the, the main editor in your particular area. Uh, it's very important that we that we don't depend on them too much. We have to do our own research, which we do. You know, we call previous delegates, we call sponsors, we call former speakers, we put advisory boards together. You know, we, we make sure that the program is, is spot on. Um, but the journalist is there as our kind of advisor, on you know to make to make sure that we've we've hit the right buttons that there isn't anything there that is incorrect people who might not know the inner workings of a content team that the validation and the research and the calls it's so important it's not you don't just read a few articles and then you write a program it's not like that at all a lot of research goes into to asking people on a call like what would you pay for what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you're struggling that we can help educate you with? The programs that we write have to be um, not just topical and we're not there just because the journalist thinks it's a good idea. We actually have to make sure that the programs, as you say, fill fill a gap in the market uh, that bring bring something to, to the delegate that they can't find elsewhere or that it really, really has to be essential viewing. And there's a lot of competition. Um, now when we when we pivoted in sort of april may june you know that wasn't an issue there wasn't delicate sort of losing attention and, and not sort of you know beginning to get a bit bored with online events so just a hell of a lot um, out there and makes our content even more important that it has to be not just interesting but actually sort of a critical place for them to go um, that's kind of what we're aiming for and of course it has to also be commercial for the sponsors we you know our 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 mix very much uh, we're pretty sponsorship heavy at the moment but we're also looking at the delegate side increasingly and we have to sort of satisfy both areas content is king as as they say i hate that terminology and it's certainly it really has had its chance to shine in the virtual environment for people they're, they're seeing the true value of it, especially if, you know, you're fortunate, Jeff, to work on really 
content-led events and there are some of our listeners that focus on and work on trade show events that sometimes content is an afterthought and hopefully the pandemic has shone a light on the fact that it's absolutely not. So when we, when we talk about content in general, how do you balance the sponsorship pay-to-play content versus the curated content? It can be difficult. How do you manage this? We have two business models. We have the what we call our core events, which are multi-sponsored, pay-to-attend, the sort of big flagships. And then we have what we call our strategic solutions, which are single-sponsored events, normally shorter, where we sort of collaborate quite closely with the sponsor and the partner to develop the program. And with the multi-sponsored events, it's, of course, content-led, and, and you know we work with the journalists at the FT to to make sure that the programs are spot on and topical alongside all the additional research that my team does. For the strategic solutions, you know, this is an opportunity. Obviously, they're there for commercial reasons, but it's also an opportunity for us to explore different topics. But we can sort of look at more specialized areas, more niche areas, and we collaborate on the program. It's a different way of looking at pay-to-play. In essence, they're paying for, for us to help them, you know, explore a particular topic. And with all of our events, of course, we, we always say that the FT has the final word on content, which is very important, particularly for our journalists who are moderating those types of events. Yeah, we keep we keep a, a tight control over that. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, I was actually reviewing a sponsor presentation the other day, and the presentation title just had two words in it. <laughs> and I was like, well, that doesn't sound very interesting, yes. and I don't want to be associated with it. So, you know, I mean, that's a really bad, good example, but I think it is really, really important for people out there to make sure that the sponsorship content is the content that represents the brand and the event brand. You know, when our sponsors sponsor a core event, we have a very detailed conversation with them on the type of speaker they're going to put forward. Sometimes, you know, I get sort of hate mail from sponsors saying, why aren't you letting me put this speaker forward? And I continue to insist because it's very important to um, to maintain the sort of integrity of the event and that they want to be associated with the FT. And it's, it's a sort of win-win, really. Oh, yes. The good old hate mail from sponsors when you turn down their sales manager to speak on a topic. Just try and get someone technical or someone who probably doesn't sound like they're going to give you a sales pitch. They might not, but it does sound like they are. Definitely. And then there's delegate pricing online. What are you doing at FT Live to monetize your really great content online? What's your plans for that going forward? I think like with everybody, there was a little bit of um, trial and error on some of the pricing to start off with. We knew I think we knew that, that people were not going to pay as much for a, to watch a virtual event as they would to go to a nice hotel in London. And so obviously prices prices sort of went down. A lot of people just, just ended up viewing our events for free. After quite a lot of research, we've now put together a new a new strategy where I think the pricing is going to be quite well tailored, as it were, to to the types of um to, to what we see as the audience now slightly different audience an audience that that will pay for quality but there's a certain level that you can't go too high but we need to begin to sort of move towards a model where people are paying you know we we put together premium content and and it's worth something 
What's your thoughts on a subscription model? Because obviously that's very, well, it's not new now for media publications to do that. I think the FT does that. And now the Netflix, and we're all familiar with this monthly subscription in some shape or form. Is that something that you're looking into or is it paid to attend a certain event? We're obviously always very interested in developing our communities. We need to keep engaging with our audiences all the way through the year. Um, and if they belong to a particular industry or have a particular interest, then we can combine, you know, big core events with smaller events and other forms of content communication to sort of keep them engaged. You know, whether whether that means that at some point we're going to begin to introduce a sort of more sort of enterprise level kind of membership models, we'll see. Um, but it's at the moment, that's not what we're doing. But it is it's an interesting it's an interesting model. But we haven't we haven't sort of begun to introduce that yet now. You know, when you go to a conference, it's obviously the priority is content, but with that comes networking. And I think that's a challenge within this virtual or hybrid or wherever we're going next. So how have you adjusted your networking activities within the digital world? And how do you think that's going to be driven by the, the new hybrid approach? We, we have a community kind of function at all our core events where any, any delegate and speaker who confirms can join the community for that particular event. And, that, and then they can, they can message each other and generally exchange pleasantries and information if they want or do deals without sharing their contact details. And, and we have pretty good take up, but I was quite surprised at some of the numbers I saw recently that people are actually taking that up and using it and, and conversing. You know, the, there isn't much, much you can do virtually. You can bring people together as we do with our roundtables in small settings, small private settings, where they do actually, they can see each other, they can talk to each other, they can exchange contact details as well if they wish, although we wouldn't obviously do that without their permission. That is something that we do, and we do that sometimes alongside our core events. So we would run a core virtual event and have lots of this great online content, and then we would organize a digital roundtable on the sidelines um, where people can talk about that content either you know just after or the day after or have a little sort of roundtable at breakfast time uh, before it starts sort of look ahead that sort of thing I, I think that as we move into this hy hybrid kind of we're, we're everyone's studying that of course at the moment and what the best formats are it would make sense that we do bring people together again in in various sort of physical places if if conditions and regulations allow we do that in, in, a, in a way that people feel that they really are getting much, they're finally seeing each other and meeting each other in person and they're, and they're really getting a lot out of that while still, in, while still benefiting from viewing some of the amazing content that through the sort of virtual event as well. So we're trying to figure out the best way to make the, both of those things work, but it might not be as difficult as, as one thinks. It's really a question of looking at cost as well and uh, and all of those things. The roundtable discussions that you mentioned, Jeff, I am hearing more and more people talk about them and I think they're really working very, very well. Yeah. You know, I mean, I suppose the other big question that people must be asking themselves is is around travel. It's not all, only about um, whether people want to network, but who's, who's going to actually be in the room. It works okay for local audiences to, I think, begin to go back to physical, but until people start doing business travel again at a sort of high rate and are willing to travel from different parts of Europe or other parts of the world to London 
for instance, to, to attend a banking conference. You know, you have to ask yourself, so what are the advantages of really going full force on, on physical when um, when it's obviously the costs are also quite high? And I think as well, when people talk about hybrids happening, the virtual and the live events happening at the same time, I am still struggling with that concept personally, because I can't imagine traveling to a conference and then sitting there and then the speaker is virtual. I would be like, are you getting here? I know. So I think you have to be very, very careful Absolutely. with that. And um, the resource issue, I mean, I, I just think it would be a complete headache, honestly. But I I, I know there's elements that would work and I, I understand some of the concepts, but especially when you had a conference, you walked into that room and the panel were, were online and I traveled there and I spent my budget on this. <laughs> I'd be angry. Yes. Totally, <laughs> totally. So we'll see. The world is obviously, we're going through a very difficult time socially, economically. It's been a disaster. But if you look at the changes in the conference industry, I suppose the changes in a lot of industries where digitalization has shifted business models really quickly, it's in a, quite an exciting time, really. It's, it's nice to have, it's very interesting and nice to have these sort of challenges where you, you look ahead and you don't really know what's going to work yet and what the world's going to be like and what's going to be possible and you begin to sort of research and study and think about all the different options and and yeah i'm really interested to see i think the next six to 12 months people Mm. will be perhaps desperate to go to live events i don't know if or they, they might not have the budget so you know it'll just be really interesting to see how how that plays out um, what would you say are the like the top secrets on getting really, really good speakers? I would imagine, I'm not going to say it's easy for you guys <laughs> because your brand is so well-known, recognizable. Who would say no to the FT, right? Lots of people do. <laughs> well, they shouldn't. I think when you invite a speaker, I mean, just to go back to what you said, yes. I mean, I, I was joking, but the FT brand obviously does help. But it is also very important not to become casual about that the um what i think is really important is the personalization of the invitation i think you know if you in if if it looks like you're it's coming from somebody who's already invited a hundred other people and it's become it looks like it's an event an invitation or an email or that could have been written for anybody something that's personalized you know and you need to research that it's you you don't sort of it's not guesswork you really have to personalize it why what what value would you would this speaker add to this conversation a little bit of praise on what they've done or you know what the interesting stuff they've done but not too much just enough to sort of make make them understand you actually do know who they are and what they could add to the conversation and the value they can add and i think that that's really important yeah guessing emails i know this is like going back to basics but people are surprised i mean i'm back to my old job in some respects doing this podcast i'm inviting people and i don't i never met you jeff before and i guessed your email yes. <laughs> which wasn't hard but yes. you know it's 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 the smallest things that actually go <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that you um cringe at when you see content not done well so i'm i come from the old um, i'm i'm an old-fashioned journalist type content editor so for me the writing style is really important so there's a lot of cringing generally because everyone has different levels of uh, acceptance on you know whether something reads well or not that's just my that's just me and i know that Sometimes I, I might be a little bit over the top on that side of things and someone puts together a really nice um, agenda with lots of bullet points. 
I, I'm okay with that now. I used to hate it. I used to want my panel descriptions to be fully written out um, in beautiful prose. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a bit more of a realist, particularly given the, the time pressures that everyone's under. And in fact, you know, as long as the points of the panel description and the program come across, that's the key thing. The other, the other, of course, difficult areas are around titles. Um, titles of events are an, an interesting challenge because you want the event, you want people to understand what the event's about and for and who it's for. But the title still has to be snappy, and the strap line, which of course is crucial. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still limits to how much, how many words you can put in that. So, I think that's a, that's an art, actually, the art of the good title. I might. I might write a book about it one day. I would love to read that. The title is just so important. I agree with you there. The title is everything. It brings the person into whatever you're trying to bring them into, whether it's a podcast episode here, whether it's your book, Jeff, or whether it's a session at an event. I do vividly remember being a conference producer and being absolutely grilled um, to make sure my titles and my strap lines were on point. I also remember one of my favourite managers when I was in that role having invited someone to speak on a topic she told me they weren't good enough and I had to disinvite them (gasps) and you know in hindsight they absolutely weren't good enough and I never never reached out to someone I thought I would have to disinvite again so lesson learned that's tricky yeah yeah and thankfully I did it professionally. We we still worked together in the same industry for years. Um, but yeah, you, you learn from that, I guess. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I would love to talk to you again. We can talk all about titles. And please let us know about when you finish your book on titles. <laughs> If you loved or even sort of liked this episode, please subscribe and rate the podcast, which will hopefully become one of your faves. Stay tuned for more episodes that will give you great support and advice on how to navigate in-person, virtual and hybrid shows in case of an event.